If your Bibles turn to Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. And I hope you don't tire of hearing this text. We've been there for several weeks now. But as I mentioned, every time I read it, it speaks to my heart. Exodus 30, verses 34 through 38. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stacte, anica, galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be a like weight. Now shall make it a perfume, a confection after the art of apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, you shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy, notice this, for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that, the smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. Just a couple of observations. First of all, if you're like me, I have had no idea what Stacte or Annika or Galbanum was. We've heard of frankincense quite a bit from the story of Jesus when the wise men came. And I shared some research that I did on what they were in our first message on this part. So if you want to see, we can go back and look at the archives. But it's interesting to me that God spoke to Moses, and he gives them very specific instruction. Now, again, these were spices, each one of them, according to the Bible, sweet spices. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, Moses knows what they are. And I don't know how common they were, but they were just spices. And, and God says, I want you to take these spices, mix them together, and make perfume out of them. And it's also interesting, I want you to take it and put it before the testimony, that's before the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle of the congregation. So I, I think about this, and, and the thought that comes to my mind, these were just spices. 
It may be rare spices. I don't know for sure about how common they were. But they were just spices. And we don't see God taking time to explain to Moses what they are. So Moses must have had some idea. So what makes them holy? What makes them holy is that God said to Moses, set them aside for me. Notice again. In verse 37, it shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. They, were, they became holy because God had set them apart for himself. Guess what God has done with you? He set us apart. And now we are holy unto the Lord. But our topic is the scent of biblical worship, the aroma of biblical worship. And I know I've mentioned this several times, but I just can't get over the fact and the question in my, in my mind. Can you imagine as that priest entered the holy place, the aroma they came in contact with? And every time they walked in there, they knew that perfume was a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. And they knew they were in the place of worship. And I don't know about you, but in my life, in my walk with God, there's nothing more precious than worship. Genuine, biblical worship. It's hard to describe. And I realize in our world today, in the church, a lot of churches, it's all about shouting and jumping and singing. But I think worship has to be a quiet time of our hearts. A time when we grow near to God. And before we're finished with this topic of biblical worship, we're going to talk about private worship and corporate worship. And my, oh my, how precious private worship can be. Just you and God. But there's also something important about coming together like we heard tonight in corporate worship. Serving and worshiping God together. But our focus over the last few weeks, we talked about the materials in the incense. And, of course, again, Stacte, Annika, Galbanum, uh, frankincense. And we began last week looking at the mixing of the incense. And we find that in verses 34 and 36. And I'm not going to read the entire thing again, but pick out a few things. But God told Moses there in verse 34, uh, there shall be like weight, so equal portions. He says in verse 35, make a perfume out of that. And then in verse 36, he says to beat some of it very small. Uh, in other words, grind it down into almost like a powder and put it before the testimony of the tabernacle. Now, and by the way, uh, God made a statement there I thought was kind of unique and kind of interesting. Uh, God said, put it there where I will meet with you. Not might meet, I will meet with you there. So a very special time. And to me, one of the most important aspects of worship is meeting with God. Knowing that God's presence is real. And so we began a week or two ago looking at the personal aspect of worship and two ways that we must approach him if we're going to worship. And one is we have to approach him in holiness. 
Again, verse 35, tempered together, pure and holy. And I realize tonight that does not come natural for us. Holiness is the natural state of God. But His holiness stands in contrast, in direct contrast, to our sinful nature. So holiness is the state of perfection being fully sanctified and set apart. So to be holy means we're sanctified. It means that we have been separated unto God. But it also means we are different. And we are distinct from everything common. And when God told Moses to take these common spices, or these spices they knew about, not sure how common they were, but regardless of that, once they were set aside for God, they were set aside, and they were different, they were distinct from whatever common was. Now they are for the Lord. But the issue is, if we're to approach God in holiness, how can we be holy? Ephesians 1.4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So Paul reminds us that not only have we been chosen before the foundation of the world, God has chosen us in Christ. We are now in Christ. We've been preaching on Sunday morning. And so God makes us holy by imparting himself to us. By imparting himself to us, the Holy One, into our being. God lives in us with the Holy Spirit. And he does that so that our whole being can be saturated and permeated with his holy nature. And we, we need to remember we don't become holy by re- Forming ourselves. We don't become holy by turning over a new leaf. We, come, we become holy because God imparts himself to us. He now lives in us. He's a unique holy one. And now he's imparting himself to us. Thank you, Jesus. And we cooperate with God to become holy by following him, imitating Christ, the one who lives in us. We do it by reading God's Word, but also by cleansing ourselves from defilement of this world, and we need to do that. But the second way we're to come is in humility, in verse 36. Exodus 30, and thou shalt be some of it very small. Is it hard to be humble? Isn't there a song about that or something? I don't know. All right, I... I have my memory, but it's, it's difficult. And humility is not an easy virtue to live by. It takes courage. It takes discipline. And it takes faith if we are going to put humility into our daily lives. Now, the Bible talks about humility often. And it describes humility as meekness. Lowliness, it describes humility as absence of ourself. And the word translated into English, the Greek word, literally means lowliness of mind. 
So genuine humility is a heart attitude and not just an outward behavior. And I am convinced there are a lot of people, including Christians, who put on an outward show of humility, but their heart is still full of pride and arrogance. Genuine humility begins in the inner man. That's where it begins. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I suppose I could ask the question, be rhetorical, how many want to be blessed? I do. I think you do as well. So Jesus said, if you're poor in spirit, you'll be blessed. So what does that mean, poor in spirit? It actually means that only those who are willing to admit, are willing to openly and honestly admit that their spiritual worth on their own is in absolute bankruptcy. On their own, they're worth nothing. And if we're going to come to Christ, we have to have that kind of humility. And the only way to inherit eternal life is to admit we are broken spiritually. Completely broken. And so when we come to Jesus Christ as sinners, and by the way, is that not how we all come? Sure. We have to come in humility. It's a requirement. We acknowledge to God and to Jesus that we are paupers. We are beggars who come with nothing to offer but our sin and our brokenness and our need for salvation. I have to realize often in my own life, even though I've been saved for quite a few years now, I am simply a beggar who found bread. That's it. And my responsibility now is to show other people where they can find that bread. I'm not better than they are. I'm better off because of Christ. When I came to Christ, I was broken and lost without him. We come to Jesus and we recognize our lack of merit. We can't earn it. And we recognize our complete inability to save ourselves. We simply can't do it. And you know the great news is? When we come to Christ that way, he offers us grace and mercy of God. And I don't respond saying, God, I I deserve it. Not at all. I accept what he offers with complete, humble gratitude. And then I committed my life to him and my life to serve others. We die to self so that now we can live as new creations in Christ. 
And I, I want to remind all of us tonight, we must never, we must never forget that Jesus Christ exchanged our worthlessness for his infinite worth. Amen? And we must not forget that Jesus Christ exchanged our sin for his righteousness. The moment we were saved, he declared us righteous. Galatians 2.20, we ended with that verse this morning. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, the life we live right now as a child of God, we live by faith in Jesus Christ. And we do that because Jesus loved us and he gave himself for our sins. Thank you, Lord. And that's true humility. That is true humility. And here's what's interesting. (coughs) True humility... It's not only necessary to enter the kingdom of God. True humility is necessary if we're going to be great in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 through 28. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, if you know the context of Matthew 20, the disciples were kind of debating among themselves about where they would sit in the kingdom of God. Who's going to be the greatest when we get there? Who's going to have the prominent seat of honor beside the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, two of the disciples asked if they could have one on the left, one on the right. They asked mom to do it, okay? And, and Jesus said, look, that's what people of the world do. They, they, they grapple for uh, higher standards in society. They're up a rung on the ladder, and they argue. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. He said, it shouldn't be among you. We're different than the world. We've been set apart. And we shouldn't act and live like that. And Jesus, if you want to be first, become a slave, become a servant. But then he says, "Here's I'm your example. I didn't come to, to be served, but I came to serve. And I also came to lay my life down as a ransom. And so here in Matthew, Jesus said, I am your model. I am your example. You're to live in the world the way I lived before you these many years, three and a half, whatever it might have been. And by the way, very clearly, Jesus said, I didn't come to serve. But I came to serve this world. I came to serve you. And so the the lesson here tonight Because Jesus came to serve, 
we need to commit ourselves to serving one another, to serving other people, and considering their interests even above our own. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 3. The Bible says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So I see a, a verse like that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And I realize that genuine humility not only involves my actions, it involves in the way I think. It involves my mind. And when Paul said, let nothing be done, he could have also said, think nothing. Because everything we do begins where? In our minds. How we think. So Paul says, whenever you do something, don't do it for strife. Don't do it to bring glory on yourself. That's just vain. And so Paul says, our actions and our thoughts have to be guarded. And they need to be guarded against ambition and conceit. We have to be careful about why we do the things we do. And my friend, that begins with the way we think. And if we will have that attitude, it will help us hold back selfish ambition. It will help us to sort of throw the water on the fire of conceit. It will help avoid strife that comes with self-justification and self-defense. And also understand something, folks. The one who came, who is God in the flesh, Jesus was not ashamed to humble himself as a servant. Now, let me ask a rhetorical question. If anyone ever deserved to be served, who did? Jesus did. He's the only one who ever deserved to be served. But he wasn't ashamed to humble himself as a servant. John 13, you know when we get there, verses 4 and 5. not going to read the entire story, but talking about Christ. He rises from supper laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Now, I realize that Christ had a spiritual lesson he wanted to teach the disciples. But understand what's going on here. How much blacktop did they have on the roads back then? Probably no gravel either. So when it rained, the roads were muddy. When it didn't rain, they were dusty. And uh, if they had shoes, they wore sandals. And so any time you came into a home, and this is a special time of dinner, a gathering, 
What's one of the things you did when you got there? A servant would get up and wash your feet for you. Now we know that this was a private time with Jesus and the disciples, 12 of them there. And they had been there long enough to enjoy the Last Supper. And what was wrong with their feet? They were either dusty or muddy. And they had borrowed a room. And so there was no servant there to wash their feet. And so which one of the disciples said, you know what, I'll take care of that. I wonder why they didn't. Now, if they're like I am sometimes, let Rick do it. I'm higher than he is. Let somebody else do it. So what happened? Who did it? Nobody. But Jesus gets up. He takes that towel and that basin of water. Now remember, this is the job of a servant, of a slave. What's he do? He washes their feet. Wow. And and again, I, I realize this the spiritual significance is even deeper than this. But folks, their feet were dirty. Now I, I learned a long time ago. If I want to thin the crowd out, announce a foot washing. I mean, people drop like flies, okay? And I, I you know, I understand that. And it's not just true in our church. It's true denomination-wide. But if we're going to have a foot washing, I usually wash my feet before I come. Amen? Uh, you should trim my own toenail, but Pam does it for me now. That sounds pretty neat, doesn't it, huh? Uh, but we get it ready. We powder them. Uh-uh, not here. But the God of the universe, he humbled himself, not just to wash your feet. That's in John 13. But according to Philippians 2.8, even to the death on a cross. Verse 8, Philippians 2. And being found in fashion as a man... We spoke about him this morning, fully man, fully God. He humbled himself. And became obedient even to the death. The death of the cross. So not only was he obedient to death, but he humbled himself so much, he allowed himself to die in the most humiliating, humiliating way there was. Bruised, beaten, and naked on a wooden cross. The Bible teaches about his humility. Jesus said in John, and my mind 
left me on that part among other places, but in John 5, I believe it was, Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. I have taught a lot about the Trinity and preached about the Trinity. But can I be honest tonight? I still don't fully understand it. I just know that it is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet he was always obedient to the Father. And if we're going to be a humble Christian, we have to be willing to put aside all of our selfishness and submit to obedience to God and his word. Jesus Christ is our example. But here's what I found, folks. True humility produces godliness. True humility produces contentment. But my friend, true humility produces security. Through the years, I've had to learn a hard lesson. You can't please everybody. Isn't that true? And that used to bother me because I wanted to, to please everybody. But when I began to realize at the end of the day, the only one that I need to really please is Jesus. I found true security. See, the problem is, if we're not careful, and folks, we've got to all guard against this, including myself, we live only to make a good impression on others. And that's the only way we express our humility, or we live simply to please ourselves. And that is not true humility. And we need to learn that self Centered living, selfish <clears throat> ambition, <clears throat> conceit, those things only bring discord. And that's it. And the Bible over and over again stresses spiritual unity. The Bible asks believers to love one another and to be in one spirit and in one purpose. And so whenever we determine to work together, when we determine to care for other problems of others as if they were our own, pro- our own problem, we demonstrate the example Christ left us to love one another, be of one spirit, and be of one person, and also understand we follow his example of putting others first when we experience unity. And I found the best way to live, folks, 
is when we realize and we come to a place in our lives where we're no longer so concerned about making a good impression. We're no longer concerned about meeting our own needs that we strain relationships in the family of God. And so we have to allow the Spirit of God to work through us to attract other people to the Lord. How many know that God has promised grace to the humble? Proverbs 3.34 Surely he, God, scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Now, by the way, let me remind you that the word grace in the Bible has two different meanings. It involves unmerited favor. That's for salvation. Anything God gives us, we don't deserve it. It's by His grace. But grace also means the ability to live a certain way. Ability from God. He gives us the ability to do what He asks us to do. And I don't know about you, but I need His grace. I need His ability to do what I need to do to please Him. And because of that, because God gives grace to the humble, I have to always confess and put away my pride. Put away my pride. And whenever we exalt ourselves and we place ourselves in opposition to God, who will, in His grace, for our own good, and hear me well, God can and He will humble us. God can and He will humble us. But if we humble ourselves... God gives us more grace, and He exalts us. And I want to throw this in tonight, folks. If we don't humble ourselves, God will. But I want to tell you, when He does, it's painful. It is painful. Luke 14, verse 11. For whosoever exalteth himself shall... Be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The context of that verse is Christ talking about going to banquets, a place you've been invited to. And uh, there were seats of honor. If you were an important person in the community, you had a certain seat to sit at. And if you weren't sure when you got there, you tried to take seat number one. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be first, but I want to be ahead of everybody else. That's human nature, isn't it? And so, Jesus, what if you go in and you take that first, that seat of prominence, and the one who's throwing the banquet says, oh, wait a minute, uh, that seat's not for you. You need to move well, the back. That's embarrassing. And so as children of God, we should not presume on our own importance. 
And I want to tell you, folks, it's so much better to be honored by God. So much better to be honored by God. So without a doubt, Jesus Christ is our best example. But it's also interesting, along with Jesus, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is also an example for us of humility. I've got to tell you, every time I read through the book of Acts, and in Corinthians, when Paul shares his testimony of the things he went through, I become ashamed of myself. The things he accomplished for God, the gifts that he had, the people he reached. And yet, in spite of all his great gifts, in spite of the great understanding that God had given him, Paul saw himself as the least of the apostles. And he saw himself as a chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came in the world to do what? Save sinners. But note what he said. Of whom I am the chief. In other words, Paul said, of whom I am the worst. Know this, church. That was not false humility. Paul saw himself as one of the worst, as the worst sinner Ever. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, and here's why, because I persecuted the church of God. Folks, Paul was speaking his heart. This was not no, this wasn't a, a statement of, False, uh, false humility. He wasn't proud. Paul was broken. And even though he was deeply religious, a deeply religious Jew, even though he was zealous for his faith, Paul realized that in the days gone by, in his ignorance, in unbelief, he, his desire was to destroy the Christian faith. And that's why he was indeed, in his own mind, the worst of sinners. But I think Paul was glad that Jesus came to save sinners, even the worst ones. Amen? And, and I know you're like me. We think of the Apostle Paul as a great hero of the faith. But Paul never saw himself that way. He never saw himself that way. And the reason was he remembered his life before he came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if Paul meant to emphasize the present tense, I am the worst, it would be more, it would mean that without a doubt, the more Paul understood the grace of God, the more he became aware of how sinful he really was. And my friend, I want to tell you tonight, the more we understand the grace of God, the more we realize how sinful we are. The 
There are those who would say that we should not speak ourselves as sinners, but saints. But my friend, we're just sinners saved by grace. That's it. And yet we are saints in the eyes of God. And Paul recognized. He recognized that he had been a sinner. And he recognized he was saved by grace. By the grace of God. But also, he recognized his past, but he didn't wallow in it. And we have to understand, humility and gratitude ought to mark the life of every child of God, including our own. And never forget that we are simply a sinner saved by His grace. Grace alone. So like the Apostle Paul, those who are truly humble will glory in the grace of God and in the cross, not in our own self-righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, look at verses 3 through 9. Paul says, for we are the circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness in the, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost, notice this, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. That I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteous which is from God by faith. I want to leave you tonight with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And here's what he said. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Good words. Because humility calls you and I to first serve God and even to serve others before we serve ourselves. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your grace you poured on our lives. And Father, if we are going to glory, let us glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. When I came to you, I had nothing to bring except my brokenness and my heartaches. And Lord, now I just simply cling to the cross. 
Father, draw us near to you and let our humility be genuine to know that Jesus Christ is indeed our example. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.